welcome to Talkin' Stories. My name is Mari Talkin. I'm your host. On this podcast, we celebrate the power of stories to both heal and shape the world. Today's episode is called Stories That Shelter Us. My guest is Jeff Zentner. He is the author of two New York Times notable books, The Serpent King and In the Wild Light, as well as Goodbye Days and Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee. Among other honors, he has won the ALA's William C. Morris Award, the Amelia Elizabeth Walden Award, and the International Literacy Association Award, and has been longlisted twice for the Carnegie Medal. He's a two-time Southern Book Prize finalist and was a finalist for the Indies Choice Award. Before becoming a writer, he was a musician who recorded with Iggy Pop, Nick Cave, and Debbie Harry. He lives in Nashville. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. It's good to be here. Your latest book, um, In the Wild Light, um, is doing wonderful things right now and garnering lots of deserved attention and um, awards. One of the one of the first things I wanted to ask you, Jeff, was you certainly in all of your novels identify as a Southern writer. Yeah, you know, I have always loved and been fascinated with the American South. I actually grew up a little bit outside of Kansas City, which most people would not consider the South. I wouldn't consider it the South. I'd consider it the Midwest. But I grew up seeing depictions of the South. I grew up reading Southern stories and things like that. And it was always a place that held a lot of fascination for me. And I have since come to discover that my ancestry um, starts in uh, Scotland and Ireland and then goes to the American South. So I think there's an element of ancestral memory there because I also feel a great affinity for Scot all things Scottish, all things Irish, all things British Isles just as I did for the American South. So I, I think there's a substantial bit of ancestral memory going on there. But as as long as I can remember, it was a place that fascinated me and felt like home to me. And so as soon as I was able to choose where I lived, I moved to the South and uh, began creating art about it. I started by making music, by making Southern music, uh, blues and, and country, Americana. And that's part of where my fascination with the South began is through music. And then uh, through writing, writing stories of the South, letting the landscape and the people of the South inform my stories. I think it's a, a really naturally rich area. Southerners, I mean, to put it simply, are characters. We're, we're storytellers. Uh, and I do say we. I consider myself a Southerner now. I don't think you need to be born in a place to claim that place as your own. And so I, I proudly consider myself a Southerner. And, and it's the place I intend to die, if nothing else. Uh, as, as for Appalachia, it's a region that I fell in love with when I lived for several years in Asheville, North Carolina, which is in the mountains of western North Carolina. Although I currently live in Nashville, which I consider in a lot of ways to be the cultural capital of Appalachia. It's the place where particularly Appalachian music reached um, the American popular culture. It's, it's the place where Appalachian artists like Dolly Parton uh, have been able to, to make their mark. So, so in a lot of ways, I feel like I still live in Appalachia, living in Nashville, even though I don't quite live in the mountains, kind of more of the rolling hills. Yeah, that's. Uh, I was going to mention Dolly Parton because that certainly is Dolly, Dollywood, and that area is very much. I think your 
you hit the nail on the head when you said it was the, it's the cultural capital of Appalachia. Um, so when did, when did you actually move to the South? Did you, you lived in North, you lived in Asheville, you said? That's right. Yeah. I moved, I moved to the South when I was, uh, 23. Wow. So you have been there basically your entire adult life. Yeah, really my entire adult life. It's, it's the, it's the place that I've lived longer now than anywhere else, any other single place. So, and you know, like I said, I'm, I'm here now. This is, this is my home. This is where I will, I die. So. Right. And your son was born there. That's right. He was born in Asheville. Yes. So, um, you know, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez says in a hundred years of solitude that you cannot p- call a place home until some of your people are born in that place and some of your people die in that place. So you've got it. <laughs> I do. Uh, I do qualify. Although I, I would, th- I, I say that you can call a place home when you want to call it home. That's my feeling about it. But I, I certainly qualify under the Gabriel Garcia Marquez standard too. You talked about in um, one of your bio- bios that I read about growing up, your parents, you know, would drop you off at the library and you would read until closing time. Um, same same with me. Um, me and a sibling, we, we got dropped off at a library and we would read until closing time. Did you read, do you remember reading um, Southern authors and sort of becoming enamored with the South that way? I, I do. Um, but as I think about it, not so much as a kid, kind of more in late teendom to early 20sdom is when I really discovered Southern authors. See, there was a long, there, there was, well, not a long period, but there was a period there where I didn't do a lot of reading. Uh, I worked at a bookstore in high school and reading felt like just doing more homework. And so I didn't actually do a lot of reading during the time that I worked at a bookstore. So there was a time there where it was really music that was uh, kind of carrying the pop cultural water for me. And I became obsessed with Southern music when I was probably, man, 12 or 13. I would listen to the radio at night and this there was this radio station out of Kansas City that would come in just very faintly on my radio because I lived I lived outside of Kansas City in a more rural area but it would come in very faintly on the radio and it was called Blues in the Night this this show on Saturday nights and they would play like John Lee Hooker uh, Albert King BB King Lightning Hopkins Blind Willie Johnson all these old blues guys and so I I fell in love with that and that to me felt like the South that music embodied what what I imagine the South to be the mood and the and the tone and just the feeling it it just struck a chord deep in me again I go back to to ancestral memory I feel like I was I had it encoded in my genes to love art that that was in conversation with the American South yes yes um, well is it true that the um, you you talked about the ancestral memory with Ireland and and Scotland. Um, it's funny because I too feel, especially Scotland, for some reason, I have this, um, it, what feels like a tie in my DNA to Scotland. But is it true that the, the that a lot of the people who, who first settled in the Appalachian area were from Scotland and Ireland? And Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that is who settled in that area. Uh, my understanding, and, and I'm not a historian, but my kind of layperson's understanding 
is that a lot of the Scotch-Irish came over uh, to the colonies as indentured servants. And when they were released from their indentured servitude, they couldn't afford the fertile land of the lowlands. So they had to settle in the mountains, which was a hard place to live, a hard place to grow crops. You know, the, the plots of land were steep. They were rocky. They weren't good for for plowing. And so they had to kind of scratch out a living somehow. And and that's where you get a lot of the cultural currents of Appalachia. That's where you get this uh, kind of uh, sense of honor. Uh, you hear about family feuds in Appalachia that last, you know, 150 years. Uh, that's that's Scottish Highland culture that you're seeing there in, in Appalachian culture. So absolutely there is that. And if you go to Appalachia, if you go to Western North Carolina and East Tennessee, it looks like the Scottish Highlands. If you compare them side by side, you can see why Scottish Highlanders would have said, hey, we know this place. We know how to get by here. Um, this is where we're going to settle and try to make our homes. Yeah, that's so interesting. So recreating the sort of the old world in the new world. Exactly. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah. So like the Hatfields and the McCoys, are those the are those the are those the feuding families in that are so famous in the Appalachian area? Yeah, exactly. Yep, Hatfields <laughs> and the McCoys. Those are the ones I know of. Of course there are, you know, innumerable other ones, but those are the ones that stick in our popular consciousness the most. Yeah, and satirized by Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn. Right. Where the two families the two families are just trying to kill each other off um over generations um yeah so it's interesting i love how you're talking about how you you got into the sort of the tone and the the sort of the vibe of of the american south through music um and listening to these these radio stations that you could barely hear um because i i got into sort of the southern culture through the writers through you know faulkner and Flannery O'Connor, um, and they very much wrote what would be considered Southern Gothic. Um, and, uh, you know, fair or not, those their depictions of the South were sort of sort of scary, <laughs> you know, like, you know, the, the, the characters and the sort of um, the landscape and the sort of the, the antebellum South. You know the crumbling antebellum. Uh, sorry, the the antebellum South that that when it becomes you know post Civil War, it's like this crumbling, like clinging to these old you know um, systems. Um, and so yeah, I uh, I got through. I got into the the Southern culture that way. I don't know if those are fair depictions of the South. You know the the the, the Southern Gothic, so to say, but. Well, there's so with those Southern Gothic depictions of the South, there's there's a seed of truth in them, I think, certainly. Um, but more importantly, in the way that they're heightened, I think you sometimes get at the truth of a place better than actually a straightforward depiction. I've I go to this reference a lot and and someday I'm going to need to really look it up and chase it down because it exists in my mind as this sort of paraphrased apocryphal thing, but I have it in my head that Tim O'Brien who wrote The Things They Carried or The Things We Carried, I can't remember even the title of his book, but his his volume of short stories about 
the Vietnam War. I have it in my head that he once said of it that the that the heightened and surrealist elements of the stories were the only way that he could depict the heightened reality of being a soldier in Vietnam, right? So telling these surrealist stories was the only way he could tell the reality of it because reality has has many facets and you can describe something, you know, in sort of a photo real way and describe it in this very straightforward way, but that may not get you all the way to understanding a place. And sometimes you have to include heightened elements to understand a place. So when when a Faulkner or a Flannery O'Connor includes these kind of grotesque elements, uh, I, I think they strike at the the heart of the south the soul of the south where there is this ugliness there there's there's beauty alongside ugliness it's a it's a place of contrast and and it's it's through writing these these grotesque characters and and situations and this heightened reality that you get at that reality more than a, a more straightforward depiction that seems totally fair and that absolutely sounds like something tim o'brien would have said about the surreal nature of of fiction and how it can get at the truth um, in that way. So, um, so my next question for you really just is a continuation of what we've been talking about because you had you you I think the way that you've characterized it is that you really started your creative life as a musician um, when you decided that you know um, as an adult that you needed to have that you had this creative impulse and you really needed to nourish it, that where you, what you found um, and what, what drew you was music and Southern blues in particular. Um, so having read um, and loved uh, in the wildlight, um, I'm just really interested in, so not to, not to um, give any spoilers, but your main character in the wildlight he he becomes an aspiring poet and you have written a lot of like original poetry for your character in this book. So I'm just wondering how your, your background and your, your interest in music and writing lyrics has informed your, your writing, especially your novels for young adults. Yeah. So I, I went on a very, I, I had a very clear evolution as a musician. I started my creative life as purely a guitarist, purely and, and playing songs that somebody else wrote, uh, traditional Delta Blues songs, traditional Appalachian songs. Uh, and then I became, uh, kind of by necessity, because I wanted to perform, I became a guitarist who sang. And then uh, I felt like I was stagnating creatively, and so I then became a guitarist-singer who wrote songs. I started to make a foray into writing songs. So that was that was very satisfying to me. And that's where the light really went off and said, oh, hey, okay, I really like this, this storytelling aspect. I like working with words because I've always loved words. I've always been a, a very avid reader. And so I, when the time came to move from music to just pure writing, what I took with me from music was uh, the knowledge that I loved words, the knowledge that I loved telling stories, 
the knowledge that there was a kind of art that I made, uh, which is to say, uh, I, I don't think it's, it's for me to tell every kind of story that I love. I love sci-fi stories. I love fantasy stories. I don't think I have any business trying to write a sci-fi novel or a fantasy novel. I, and, and I learned that from music where I love all kinds of music. Truly, I have fantastically diverse tastes in music, but I love kinds of music that I have no business trying to make. So I learned that I have a, an artistic voice. There's a kind of art that I make. There's a voice that I speak with. There's a story that I tell, and I'm going to be most effective when I find that story and I tell that story, when I find that voice and I speak with that voice. So that's really what I brought over from music. Now, poetry is weirdly kind of a final frontier for me uh, in the sense that, yes, the songs that I wrote for years are poems, um, and, and I always aspired to try to write the sort of song lyrics that could stand on their own as poetry, that you could read without a backing performance and without, you know, the ways that a performance can hide, you know, flaws and, and imperfections. Um, and, and these lyrics would just read as poetry. I, I think I rarely succeeded in that. I, I think actually very few songwriters succeed in that. I think poetry is kind of its com uh, completely different art. And it was really intimidating to me because I couldn't hide behind a guitar. I couldn't hide behind a vocal performance. Your words are just out there. They're, al they're alone. You don't have the ability to use your performance to weigh on how your words should be read or received. The words have to do it themselves. And so poetry was, was really scary and is really scary for me. I have such tremendous respect for it as an art form. So when I wrote my first book, The Serpent King, uh, the main character, one of the main characters, is a musician. He's a songwriter. And yet, at no point did I put his song lyrics in the book. Because I wanted the reader to be free to imagine the best song lyrics they could possibly imagine. I wanted my main character to be free to be better than me, right? So, um, because I had kind of set him up as this brilliant songwriter, so I didn't want him to be tied to my flaws and imperfections. So I didn't ever include his lyrics in the book. With In the Wild Light, I saw an opportunity to create art using the voice of my character because it didn't need to be brilliant poetry. I, in fact, I had him set up as a, as a beginning poet, as somebody who was discovering poetry really just as I was. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to just go ahead and write poems in his voice because I'm discovering poetry. I'm discovering my voice as a poet. I'm discovering the stories I tell as a poet and the voice I speak with as a poet. So I'll just go ahead and put poems in the book that, that speak with his voice. So that's kind of how I arrived at that. Yeah, that's so interesting because uh, I, I mean, we're going to talk about the book in more detail and in a bit, but I was just so struck by um, how realistic it was for Cash, who um, leaves this small town in Tennessee and goes to a boarding school in Connecticut, sort of a, you know, a college prep, you know, prestigious boarding school in Connecticut. Um, basically, he's following his best friend who has gotten a scholarship and has finagled a scholarship for him as well. 
but I was really impressed by how it was real, how realistic it was for him and the struggles that he had. It wasn't like, and then magically he, he fit in and magically he, he discovered his hidden talents, um, you know, overnight. It was a long process for him to really sort of find his footing and find his voice. Um, so, um, cause I think, his, I think the first poem that he writes is like five words or something. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's a poem. It's a poem about how he, um, it's something like words are stuck in my head, like an ax stuck in a stump or something like that. It was a poem about how he couldn't write poems. Yeah, it was something to that effect. Words are stuck in my mind, like an ax is buried in a stump. And, uh, that sounds right. Which actually sounds like a good good poem to me. Like, you know, that actually was like, you know, it's 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 concise. It has imagery. Um, but his teacher was like, no, this is not good enough. You need, and she she actually goes through a whole lesson, you know, like a whole, they sit down together and she asks him questions to inspire him to write, which is like, I don't know if you got some consultation from some some poet teachers for that, but that was like a great lesson that he that he has with her. I, I actually didn't. I mean, I, I do have a, uh, a dear friend, Brittany Cavallero, who writes uh, the, the Charlotte Holmes series, who is a poetry teacher at Interlochen Academy in Michigan, which is a arts boarding school. It's a really cool place. And I did consult with her on some aspects of, of it. But the, the part where Dr. Adkins, the name of the poetry teacher, and Cash sit down and just go through writing a poem... That I was just kind of flying by the seat of my pants on. That I was just, you know, what would it look like for a poetry teacher to walk a kid through writing a poem? I figure, well, hopefully that's what it would look like. So I'm I'm glad it read uh, plausibly. Yeah, like she was basically just like, well, what does this remind you of? What, is, what does this make you feel? What is, you know, what connections are in your mind? Which is, you know, you kind of just got to let it, her, her sort of Socratic method where she was asking him questions that would lead him to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, um, instead of just like, you know, stopping, just letting it all flow out so that he could put it together in the way he wanted it. He wanted to, so he could create words and images that he could then put together in in a poetic form. So, um, yeah, really wonderful. And um, if let's just dive into your latest novel, In the Wild Light. I really loved this novel. I read it over the course of a of a few weeks this fall. At one point, my husband came into the room while I was reading it. I was like, "Do you have allergies?" <laughs> and I was like, "I was like, no. This book is making me cry." It's like, "Do you not know anything about me?" But first of all, but but yes. Um, and I'll tell you. I'll. I'm sure. You know, the response that you're getting from a lot of your readers is that this is a very emotional book. This is a book about loss. This is a book about finding home, finding shelter. It's a book about love. Um, it's it's a book about finding oneself. Um, and um, I'm sure like lots of different readers have have can pinpoint the moment when they sort of really lost it when they were they were reading your novel. Um, the the moment that I lost it, um, reading your, like, really lost it, was when Papa, the Cash's grandfather, tells him the story that he's been saving for his entire life, Cash's entire life. He's been saving this story because, as Papa said, pa, 
Powell says, um, he feels that if you, the more you tell a story, it loses a little bit of its power. It's something that, that Cash kind of disagrees with later on, but that's what the grandfather says is that he's been saving the story because he feels that the more you tell it, it loses its power. And it's a, it's a story about like Cash's first hours of life and being held by his grandfather on the porch. And, um, and the grandfather says, tells Cash, I saw the face of God that day because this moment was so special between this infant grandson and himself. But, and, and if you want to read a passage from your book, um, that would be great. Um, if you want to read that passage, if you want to read a different passage, but I just wanted, that's the moment for me. Um, I don't want to spoil anything for your, for readers who have not read the book yet, but the moment that the grandfather tells the story to Cash um, about his own, um, they're, they're, basically it's their first connection with this newborn baby and this, and this you know, elderly um, grandfather. Um, but if you could just talk a little bit about um, your, um, how this story came to you, how it spoke to you, um, were you were you thinking about the theme of of home and and finding home and leaving home? So all of my books kind of start off as these uh, composites. I kind of I kind of take a mental inventory and I collect the things that I'm fascinated with at at that moment, the things I love at that moment, the people I'm fascinated with in that moment. I think about the uh, stories that I want to tell that I haven't told yet. I think about the stories that I have told that I want to follow to a, uh, a different conclusion, maybe. Uh, I think about the pop culture that has really moved me. So, In the Wild Light started out with me thinking about some pop culture that I loved. I was thinking about two pieces of pop culture in particular. I was thinking about... Uh, Goodwill Hunting, which is my favorite movie, and I was thinking about Dead Poets Society, which was my favorite movie growing up. And specifically with Goodwill Hunting, I was thinking about a dynamic that I really love in that movie, which is the the genius who is best friends with somebody who feels kind of very very normal in this kind of oafish uh, Ben Affleck character and. And I just thought that character was was so moving, Ben Affleck's character, how he tells uh, Will, every day I come to pick you up, and, and I, again, paraphrasing terribly here, every day I come to pick you up, and I just hope that I'll knock on your door and you'll be gone. I want better for you than being stuck here with me in this dead-end life. I want you to realize the potential of your genius. And I I, I thought that was so beautiful, and, I, and I, it made me want to write that dynamic, the dynamic of the genius and the best friend who, and they support each other and they nourish each other. And uh, I wanted to write that dynamic, but I also wanted to write a boarding school book. Boarding school has always loomed large in my imagination as, as a kid who actually really liked school a lot growing up. And every opportunity that I ever had growing up to be with other kids who liked school 
those were really wonderful opportunities. And so I would think a lot about, man, if you go to boarding school, you must really love school to live at school. So that must be a school full of kids who love school. And what would that be like to have, you know, deep conversations in your dormitory hallway until all hours of the evening and to to live free of parents? And I'm, I'm sure boarding school kids have way more rules than I had growing up. I sure I had way more freedom, but still that's, that's what I, that's how I idealized it. Um, so here I've got these two things. I've got boarding school, I've got genius and, and best friend. So there's a natural hook there. I have a genius get a, a, a scholarship to a boarding school and she drags her best friend along who thinks he's average and not worthy of this opportunity that she's given him. So those were a couple of things that fascinated me. And then there's poetry. I'm fascinated with poetry at this time. So I'm, I'm looking at this going, well, how can I shoehorn poetry into this? Well, okay, so they're going off to this fancy boarding school. There's going to be opportunities there that they wouldn't ordinarily have at their high school in their small town in East Tennessee. One of those might be to study at the feet of a renowned poet um, because fancy boarding schools are going to have people like that on their faculty. So there we get poetry in the mix too. And then there's sort of the, um, the base, like when, when, when you go to make a, when you go to make a soup, like you've got your mirepoix, that's a a cooking term, a French term, and it's, uh, onions, celery, and carrots, and you, you chop it all up, and that gives you like a base of flavor and your aromas, and, and like all your soups start with your mirepoix. And my mirepoix is um, stories of home, stories of friendship, stories of loss. Like those are, that's, that's my mirepoix. Those are, the, those are the types of stories that resonate most deeply with me, and that's the base from which I then, you know, add in some some chicken broth and some butternut squash and some, you know, heavy cream and a little dash of thyme and, you know, et cetera, uh, to, to make the soup. So, uh, so those are all of the elements that I brought together. Oh yeah. And, and another element is, is love of nature and specifically love of rivers. Um, I had started getting really into kayaking at a river near my house and I was going at least once a week and it was such a contemplative, beautiful activity for me. I wanted to write a character who loved a river because uh, I think you can you can love a river. A river very much feels like a living thing, feels like an animal that you can love. And so I wanted to write a character who loved a river. So I was able to shoehorn that in there. Um, so whatever I'm not able to shoehorn into a book completely... Uh, I, I scrape it up. I put it in the bucket for the next book. So, for example, within the Wild Light, I hinted a little bit at food. I love Southern food and cooking traditions. Uh, it's it's very important to me. There was even a moment there where, when I was deciding to leave music, where I could have could have gone hardcore into cooking or hardcore into writing. And I went hardcore into writing, but I could just as easily have gotten hardcore into cooking. But I hinted at that with the character of Desiree and in The Wild Light, who is this uh, award-winning chef of Southern cuisine. And so I wasn't able to completely say what I wanted to say about food and cooking in that book. So I'm currently working on my first book for the adult market, which centers around a Southern farm-to-table restaurant. So 
anyway, that's a much longer answer than you probably wanted. No, that's great. And that um, it's funny because when you first started talking about bass, I was thinking like the bass line in music, like B-A-S-S, but you were talking about a cooking term. So you've got a lot of different things going on. Um, but I mean, that would work too, right? A bass line. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they both work. They both work. Um, but yeah, I definitely in the character of Desiree, who is the partner of um, Dr. Atkins, the, po the, the poetry teacher, I could definitely see your a love for cooking and specifically Southern cuisine coming through. I mean, they have this, the two of them invite a group of students over to their house for Thanksgiving because they're, you know, these students are kind of stuck on campus um, for Thanksgiving when most students are going, going home and cash uh, for a particular reason um, doesn't get to go home for Thanksgiving. And she does this, I think I was like looking up the name that the ingredients that she was mentioning it was like these layers of flavor that <laughs> like you're just mouth watering when uh, Desiree cooks so oh I had so much fun with that menu for for Thanksgiving I just had an absolute blast putting that together yeah and her um and just sort of like cash you know who grandpa has emphysema grandma you know they've they've had um the extra expense of, you know, raising and providing for cash since he was 13. And I don't think that grandma's ever going to be able to retire. Um, so she's the manager of a Little Caesars pizza. And so in that Thanksgiving scene, you know, you can just tell Cash's eyes are just popping out of his head because he's never been exposed to this kind of this kind of cuisine before. Not at all. No. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's really that's really interesting. Those three sort of prongs of like music, cooking, writing, you know, all the senses. If Cash, he, he actually does not want to leave his, his, his small town. And this is, a, this is a fictional small town, correct? That's right. Yeah. The reason I did that is because for it to be plausible that they would be so compelled to leave their small town and go to this, this boarding school, I needed to throw the school system of the town under the bus a little bit. And and I, I didn't want to do that to a real town. I mean, this this the town of Sawyer, Tennessee, is based loosely on Newport, Tennessee, mm -hmm. uh, which is a place that that I know and have visited in in East Tennessee. And I have no doubt there are many truly dedicated educators in Newport, Tennessee, doing the best that they can with the resources that they have, which I'm sure are never enough. They're never enough in any public school anywhere, but. Uh, but I, I just thought they didn't need to be thrown under the bus to, to move my story forward. So the fictional school system of, of Sawyer, Tennessee gets thrown under the bus instead. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and um, when, we, when the book opens, we, we see Cash. Has, it's, um, it's summertime. Um, Delaney is um, working at a Dairy Queen. Um, she's already made this discovery before the book starts. She's already made a discovery of a particular type of uh, it's like a sort of a new strain of penicillin. Exactly. Which, you know, can be which is super important discovery because we have all of these um, super bugs. Right. We have all of these super bacteria that are resistant to our antibiotics. Um, one, of my, one of my great fears, by the way, that's another little Jeff Zentner Easter egg is uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria terrifies me. Yeah. 
Like we don't want to go back to the to to life before we had antibiotics. Um, nope. Yep. So um, yeah, when I was reading it too, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, God, I hope this is actually true. Like I hope there is some high school kid out there going into caves, you know, spelunking into caves to find a new strain of, you know, wouldn't that be great? But um, me too. Yeah, but so he's he's mowing lawns, you know, um, and he's kind of really happy he's got his best friend um he's got his grandparents um delaney is very unhappy um she's she's pretty unfulfilled where she is she's you also tackled op opioid addiction in this in this book um delaney's mom that you know the two of them cash and um delaney they actually meet at a narrow is it narratine is that how you pronounce it yep um, they 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 meet at a support group for kids whose um, parents are sorry who have family members who are addicted to opioids, but um, so um, he loves being on the river. I mean, like the river and moving bodies of water are really like almost like another character in your book. Um, he loves the natural world. He loves being on the porch with his grandfather and and talking to his grandfather. Um, and he has, he has enough and he's, he's home. Um, your book, the sort of the plot of your book has been described as, um, he has to leave the place of his heart in order to support the person of his heart, who is Delaney. Um, and, and she is, you know, home for him too. And he's really torn at the beginning about this decision about whether he should go with her to Connecticut. So I just wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit more about what this book says about where we can find shelter and and how that sort of plays out for Cash. Yeah, so so Cash begins the novel uh, being raised by his grandparents. His mother died uh, of an opioid, a fentanyl overdose, when he was I, I want to say thirteen. He was he was young, thirteen or fourteen. Uh, so he is he is living a better life than he ever thought he would get to being raised by his grandparents his life has returned to a sort of stability after years of living in the chaotic home of of an addicted parent things are going pretty good for him and you can you can get into a comfortable place where you're you're so afraid of of disrupting it that you won't take any risks, even risks that you need to take to move your life forward in some way. And that's where we find Cash, where he's got this, 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 this opportunity really out of the blue. I mean, even for Delaney, who's, who's unquestionably a genius, but without some, you know, catalyzing event like the discovery of this mold, who knows what she's going to be able to do with her genius because she's we establish in the book she's not a particularly great student um so she wasn't going to end up going to ivy league schools just based on her academic performance she had to something had to happen so so shelter can be a, a good thing and home can be a good thing but stories need tension and there can be this tension in home where where if we get too comfortable we don't take the kind of risks we need to take to change our lives um and and in a way i write from a place of personal experience on this you know 
switching from music to writing books was scary. I mean, here I was basically on the cusp of middle age, trying to learn a new artistic discipline with all of the responsibilities and burdens of adulthood, where I had learned music basically as a kid with my parents taking care of me in every way. So it was it was really frightening. It was really daunting. It would have been much more comfortable for me just to say, gosh, you know, it would have been fun to write books. But hey, I chose music and that's what I'm sticking to and I was comfortable. So in, in a weird way, Cash's journey to, to Middleford mirrors my journey out of music into writing. That makes sense. Yeah. So because I when I was at the beginning of the book, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, like I really wanted Cash to make the leap, you know, like I I of course, you know, we want our protagonists to take risks. You know, that's one of the reasons that we we read stories is like we're we want to experience this risk taking um, with our characters and just, you know, see what happens. Um, but what are some of the other ways that he sort of like finds new because he you know he comes from a very traumatized um background um as you mentioned his his mother has died of an opioid overdose i think he was 13 they were living in this tiny sort of like rotting trailer she had a series of boyfriends he's he never knew his father um and he is the one who discovers her after she has overdosed and that event um causes you know him to have recurring nightmares and um and then he has this looming fear of losing another person that he loves what are some of the other ways that he like is able to find because he, he does struggle you know throughout um he struggles when he goes to you know the boarding school with delaney he struggles with um his academics he just he, he struggles with you know you know socially he just he struggles even with his friendship with Delaney herself, you know, he's very insecure. He's worried that um, she's going to find her people at the boarding school and leave him behind because, you know, he didn't deserve to be at the boarding school in the first place. How does he, how, how did you bring him to a place where he does feel like he is, he has a new sort of sense of home and sense of shelter? Well, so that's, that was where the poetry kind of slotted in perfectly because I needed a way for him to recontextualize and, and, and take a fresh look at the experiences of pain and trauma that had shaped him and that had influenced him. And, and poetry turned out to be a perfect way to do that. It became a shelter for him. In fact, I think in the book, at one point, I even say just outright, Cash refers to, to poetry as the only shelter he knows anymore. His life feels so uncertain his grandfather's dying he's he's far from he's you know 1600 miles away from him at this strange place with all these uh children of privilege and he just feels lost and he's he's got this uh collection of nightmares that sort of play on a loop and and he just he's looking for anything he's looking for any shelter from the storm and he finds it in poetry. And in a real sense, In the Wild Light is my love letter to the ability of art to do that for us. It can be the shelter that, that nothing else can, even people, uh, because people die on us. Uh, like, you know, um, 
like Cash is afraid is going to happen with his grandfather, like like his mother did. Um, so art and creating art and consuming art and losing ourselves in art, I think is such an important way of finding shelter. And that's really one of the, the overriding themes of, of In the Wild Light. Yeah, I love that. Um, obviously a big fan of, of also of art, um, creating shelter. So as you know, I am also, uh, I also teach at a boarding school. Um, I don't live on campus. And so, um, I'm not quite like Dr. Atkins. I'm also not the renowned poet that she is, but, um, I definitely, um, understand that community and understand how, how, um, you know, it, it, one of the things that surprises me about teaching at a boarding school is how many of the students there, so this is this is a 9 through 12, you know, high school, how many of the students there have chosen to be, be there and have gotten themselves there of their own volition and have overcome great obstacles in order to be there. And I think it's, you know, a lot of it has to do with what you were saying about like, they want to be surrounded by like-minded peers and they kind of, they, they want that, that community, um, but they also, you know, struggle being so far away from home and um and having to navigate you know different socioeconomic levels of that and and so on and so forth but um cash finally it's sort of like his his breakthrough um when he is able to process like his his identity his life and his trauma through his poetry because one of the things, one of the sort of like ways he tries to find shelter before he really finds poetry is through rowing, right? Yeah, rowing. Well, canoeing in his town in Tennessee, and then he discovers rowing at Middleford, which is kind of a natural uh, progression because all Middle Middleford kids are required to have a sport. So that was sort of a natural sport for him to take to. Right. But he like, and he does meet like one of his really good friends on the rowing team. Um, and but he does spend a lot of time sort of talking about how much he loves that physical exertion and how it sort of is like a reprieve from him, from his anxiety and his insecurity is this like just, you know, like making his muscles burn and like he doesn't even have time to think about, you know, his mind's not churning, you know, when he's exerting himself in that way. But even that to me is like he's kind of numbing himself as opposed to really processing I don't know if you want to. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Yeah, no, I th I think that's right. He's he's suppressing it. He's numbing it. He's taking his mind off it. He's replacing it. And those can all be and those can all be valid ways of coping with things. And certainly more healthy than a lot of ways that you can try to numb pain. I mean, Cash frequently reflects on the way the way that his mother tried to numb sort of the pain of existing, which was through drugs that dulled her senses so um it's so so that the 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 rowing addressed the symptoms of of his trauma i guess you could say and the poetry uh addressed the causes absolutely yes um so that's a wonderful sort of character arc that cash has and one more thing that I wanted to sort of touch on um, with this book is that we haven't talked about yet is um, he, you know, he goes with his best friend Delaney to to Middleford, Middleford, and they have some they have some periods where they have had some falling out, and um, um, but he does he he is able to make new friends and to um, 
engage with, um, you know, different peers around him. And, and one of his male friends, his name is Alex. That's right. And um, I've mentioned this to you before, but one of my favorite parts of the book was, um, so Cash uh, gets into sort of a fisticuffs uh, situation defending female peer from what appears to be a sexual assault against her. And in doing so, he gets into a physical altercation, gets shoved against the wall, and gets concussed, goes to the hospital. Um, This is more towards the end of the novel. And um, when he sort of comes to and is able to talk and um, his his all his friends come in including Delaney and he asks them all to line up and give him a kiss because they're so glad to see him that he's okay and he's a little he's a little um uh woozy um because again he's concussed but the last in line is his friend Alex and they've just been buds since they met as they're lining up he asks for some sugar from Alex and Alex does not even hesitate he just walks up and gives him a big kiss on his cheek um and this moment and other moments in the in the novel really make me think that this is showing a healthy healthy male relationships you know like these are two high school guys they um because they're because they're both scholarship kids they don't have the laundry service that everyone else that most people seem to have most students seem to have they're required to wear uniforms at middleford and so because they don't have this laundry service they have to do their laundry together on Saturdays and they um they have to like iron their clothes so that they look presentable in class but they don't really know how to iron so they're like teaching each other how to iron and at one point they they think that it would be a good idea to actually have a YouTube channel about their their banter in this way um this book has been described as sort of dismantling the idea of toxic masculinity um so I just wondered if, if you wanted to talk about that a little bit yeah, that I mean that was a really conscious choice on my part. I it, it's a young adult book. It's marketed to the young adult audience. I write for young adults. Uh there there is a certain responsibility you feel as a young adult author to to do some good in the world because you've got an audience of uh, minds that aren't completely formed. You might be able to persuade somebody of something. And so my ministry uh, among some of the other ministries I, I see is speaking to young men. I'm, I, I am a, uh, I, I'm a straight male in writing YA, and there are not very many of us in YA. Uh, I would say, gosh, if, if, if there's even five or six percent of YA authors who are straight men, I would be shocked. And as such, I think we have a special responsibility to talk to young men and and to dismantle ideas of toxic masculinity. And at the time that I was writing In the Wild Light, it was certainly on my mind. I was writing it in 2018, which was when America was truly in the hellish grips of uh, the presidency of Donald Trump, who I, I see as really being an avatar for the most toxic sort of masculinity, just the most destructive, the most harmful sorts of masculinity. And so I wanted to consciously model the opposite direction. I wanted to show uh, men and boys 
being affectionate toward one another, expressing love, expressing feelings. And, and it wasn't just with Alex, uh, who was based heavily, by the way, on a high school buddy of mine named Rich Pack. Um, not just Alex, but his, uh, Cash's relationship with his grandfather as well is, is a very close and loving relationship where they're not afraid to show physical affection toward each other, uh, not afraid to be tender with one another, and to really just model the, the different ways that there are to be men. In fact, there's, there's one point early in the story, and, and this is actually kind of a catalyzing event for Cash to make the decision to go to school, um, when something happens to his grandmother, an act of violence happens to his grandmother, and Cash, in sort of a Grand Appalachian tradition, wants to take violent revenge on the person who did this to his grandmother. And so he's ready to, to go out with an axe and bury it in the skull of the person who did this. And his grandfather calls him back and says, where did you get the idea that this is, this is how you solve problems? And Cash, you know, doesn't really have an answer for that. And his grandpa says, well, you, you grew up with this. You grew up thinking that this is the way that, that, that we solve problems. And he says, this is, this is a great place to live where we're at. This is a great place to grow up. It's a beautiful place. But you learn one way to be a man here, and there's many ways to be a man. And that's why I want you to go to this private school, because I'm hoping that you see other ways to be a man. And, and of course, once he gets to this school, then we see an avatar of toxic masculinity in the form of his roommate, Trip, who is probably one of the most unambiguously villainous characters I've ever written. Uh, I wrote a pretty villainous character in The Serpent King in the form of Dill's father and in the form of Travis's father. But in both of those cases, um, there's pretty clear reasons why they became the way they are, not to, to create sympathy for them, but just to explain them. With Trip, he's just kind of awful. He grew up rich. He is, uh, he, he's a rich, snobby kid. Uh, zero empathy, just really uh, an emblematic of toxic masculinity. And so all through the story, I wanted to confront it and examine it in, in various forms, uh, examine the intersections of things like toxic masculinity and racism. At one point, Trip, who's from Arizona, by the way, defend sort of uh, in a roundabout way, defends the Confederate flag. And Cash, who's from Tennessee, says, look, man, um, you know, you, you think the fact that you didn't own slaves takes you off the hook. But the fact is, I live around people who remember feuds for a hundred years, right? People remember things. Like, this is still a thing. This is still something we have to contend with. So, just kind of showing there the intersections between to toxic masculinity and, and, and racism and bigotry and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm glad that came through in the story. I really wanted that to be one of the takeaways. I really wanted this to be a, a book that confronts that and, and unpacks it. Yes, absolutely. So the intersections of toxic masculinity and racism and then really overt misogyny um, Absolutely. Because, yeah, Shrip is the one who, the way he treats women is just really appalling. Um, and I loved how at one point, um, I, I don't think Cash says this, out, says this out loud, but he says it to himself. He's, he's, he's trying to keep the peace, you know, between himself and his 
awful roommate who made it very clear early on that he had nothing but contempt for for cash and and contempt for all scholarship kids right um yeah and and cash thinks to himself you know as if your whole life is not a, a free ride right right which i think is a really great retort right and i also loved how you know you said you were you were writing this in 2018 and we were in the grips of you know very um, overt and egregious toxic masculinity in the form of Trump. I, I liked how you dealt with that without actually naming that particular politician, because you have the grant. You have the grandfather who's lost a lot of friends because when Tennessee um, elects its first black governor, he sees the racism come out in his friends um, and won't stand for it. And that was cl clearly Obama, right? Right, and, right, yeah. And then, the, and then another, then the, then the governor who follows the first black governor is pretty clearly Trump. So I loved how you, did I get that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. It was it was my way of uh, of of kind of playing with that a little bit. Yeah, and and as I mentioned as well, um, you know, the moment that I lost it in your book was that moment when the grandfather tells the story about. I mean, I don't know if you would want to read that passage do you have no. oh no heavens no i can't i would not be yeah. able to get through that passage here's okay. here's a rule of thumb when you're reading my books if you lost it reading a passage in the book i lost okay. it writing that passage and i will lose it even more reading the passage during during uh the early days of covid anybody who who tuned into my instagram live i read in their entirety my first two books, uh, The Serpent King and Goodbye Days. And anybody who tuned into those <laughs> Instagram lives uh, can attest that the parts that, that made them cry in those books yeah. make me cry too. So I will respectfully decline to uh, become a blubbering mess on your podcast and make you have okay, to well, me out. Fair enough. And um, I understand that. I, you know, I teach high school students and I have taught... Um, dickens a tale of two cities for a good decade every year and there are passages in there that i still cannot read i mean I, I i read them aloud in class and um and every time and it's it's bad because when i start to tear up and i look and i see my students and they're feeling it too i i, I can't look at them because they're feeling it too yeah. it's like a feedback loop. Like, oh dr Dawkins. i'm like i know let's just try to breathe breathe um but yeah. okay but i will try to paraphrase the the passage that i'm talking about which is the father teaching he 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 names things for the little baby little baby cash he's all wrapped up all you can see is his little face and the grandfather says do you feel that wind on your face that's called wind do you do you um you see those trees over there? Those are called trees. And he just talks about it being like he's telling the he's telling the 17-year-old Cash the story or the 16-year-old Cash the story. And he's saying that that was like one of the most sacred moments of his life where he got to introduce his grandson to the natural world and to name the things that he felt, you know. Um, so that, again, supports the idea of how intentional you were with um, – this dismantling of toxic masculinity. Um, his grandfather holds nothing back, you know? Um, so really beautiful. 
Yeah, he's he's kind of pure tenderness. He's he's I think just just as Trip is the most unambiguously evil character I've ever written, I think Papa is probably the most unambiguously good character I've ever written. Yes, I mean, um after he passes and Delaney, you know, Delaney really is the only person in his orbit, in Cash's orbit that really understands what it means to lose his Pep, they, his nickname is Pep because his, his name is Philip, correct? Yep. Philip yeah, Pearl Pep. Pruitt. So they call him Pep for short. Yeah. Pep. So she's really the only one who really truly understands what it means to lost him because the, the two of them are really good friends too, like um, Delaney and Pep. You know, um, they would, they had this uh, tradition of watching Longmire together before she went off to school. And, um, you know, he, he, you know, um, we find out later in the book, we find out later that um, Pep has known all along that Delaney is in love with Cash and couldn't articulate it or was too afraid to. Um, so the two of them, Delaney and Pep, have this this link and this bond. But like after his passing, the two of them are sort of sitting sitting together. They'd, there's nothing to say except what what Delaney says, which is there was none better. There was no one better. And like, that's just the truth of Pep. Yep. So yep. here's a, here's a more, a lighter question. I mean, this, this book um, is full of humor as well. Um, lot, lots of laugh out loud, loud moments. Um, even as a Californian, um, you know, I didn't take offense to the, the jab at Californian barbecue, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I think let's see if I can remember the line because Alex, Alex and Cash are kind of like throwing down about the best barbecue because, you know, like barbecue in the South. Right. That that's like you throw down about who has the best barbecue. In, Absolutely. Right. And but then there's also Korean barbecue and, you know, Alex's parents have a Korean restaurant. And um, but there was something they, they were sort of bonding over the fact that they could agree on that California barbecue must be bad. They they probably use mango LaCroix and mashed up avocados for barbecue sauce. <laughs> that you got it. You got it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, there's lots of laugh out loud moments. I love, you know, the way that the, the way that the kids talk to each other, like really rings true the way the adolescents are sort of like ribbing each other. But um, also um, I was just curious about Delaney and all of the facts that she has in her mind and sort of a running theme where she's saying or somebody says to her it's it's pep or it's it's um cash himself where he's they say to her tell me something i don't know because she's got these like her mind is full of these random obscure science and not even only science but just obscure factoids um that are super interesting and um she will kind of sort of tailor them to to you you know, the person that she's talking to, um, according to your interests and your background and your life experience. But like, I'm just really curious, like, where did you get all of those Delaney facts? <laughs> well, first of all, it was it was a real challenge to write a character who's a genius as a non genius. I just did not know what to do with her. And so I thought, well, the best that I can do is show what it would look like to be in the vicinity of a genius. And and maybe the way her genius manifests, uh, if I can't get into her thought processes, 
um, which I don't think you could depict on the page anyway. If I can't get into her thought process, maybe I can show the way they manifest. And they manifest through her offering up the fruits of her insatiable curiosity about the world and about the way things work and, and her photographic memory. So those are all just sort of facts that I know that I've fascinated, that, that have been fascinating to me. I love trivia. Uh, I love, um, just random factoids. I, I collect them in my mind. I should go on Jeopardy someday, but, uh, I, I, so I, I just use all of those. And I will say, I don't know for a fact that all of Delaney's facts are true. One one aspect of her character is that that she gets a lot of her information from the internet. And as we know, not you can't believe everything you read on the internet. So if you if you come to me and say, Hey, you you know, Delaney says at one point this, but that's actually not true, I'll be like, Yeah, no, that's you're probably right. Um but that's kind of where her imperfection lies, is that she's got this imperfect base of knowledge. She's got this amazing brain to process and store this information, but she's kind of growing up on this diet of junk food information. You know, whatever she can glean from, um, you know, looking at her cracked phone screen under the covers at 2 a.m. after everybody's gone to sleep and she can finally have some time to herself from babysitting her mom. So, um, So that's... That's where that all comes from. Yeah, and some of, some of the facts that she shares, you know, are like no one knows, right? Like she's they're just like wild speculations, you know, like like yeah. like what if millions of years ago there was another human race that and and we don't know because there's no, there's nothing left of them, you know? Um and and Cash is like, "Well, there would be, you know, there would be pyramids, there would be there would be fossils." And she's like, "No, not necessarily, you know." So um so, yeah, yeah that, that was that was a fascinating fact I ran across, that there could, could have been civilizations on Earth millions and millions of years ago, uh, and, and various geological processes, tectonic processes, have just completely erased any evidence of these civilizations. I'll say that my favorite thing that she talks about in the book, and, and, and I like this one because it's unquestionably true, and very few people know this, is that there used to be a parrot species native to the southeastern United States. It was the only indigenous, um, maybe North American, although I think technically Mexico is considered part of North America, so maybe it's not North American, but it's, it's the only indigenous parrot species to the United States, and it's the Carolina parakeet. And it's this beautiful green parrot with sort of a yellow and red feathers on its head and it used to live in Tennessee and North Carolina and and Appalachia and it existed not with the dinosaurs but until like 1920 like a surprisingly short time ago there used to be wild parrots in the southeast United States and that's one of those facts that just blows my mind it's so uh, beautiful but sad at the same time that we no longer have these parrots um, and just, I think, kind of an example of of the wonder in this world. Yeah, were they? Was their extinction caused by human humans taking, you know, infringing on their habitat? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. That is very sad. And also, um, 
yeah, some it, it, very poetic in a way as well. Um, yeah, that we used to have these tropical birds in the American South. Well, Jeff, this has been really fun. I don't know. Um, I know you're doing a lot of um, sort of book signing events with in the wildlife and some school visits. And how's it going in terms of the feedback that you're getting? And well, it's going great. Um, I have been just absolutely bowled over by the feedback for in the wildlife. Uh, it's been just incredible really really wonderful it was a scary book to write in a lot of ways it came out of a time in my life that was a very difficult couple of years uh, and that's even before the pandemic the pandemic was easy peasy compared to the couple of years I had before the pandemic um, so so the fact that that time in my life produced anything much less really the book I'm most proud of I would say uh, is kind of wondrous to me it's it's given me opportunities like this to talk to you uh it's given me a new cast of characters who live in my head and, and attend my life so it's it's been a wonderful thing and i i feel really really lucky to have had a had a part in bringing it into the world yeah i mean i think um there are so many little nuggets and quotes in the book that i think could could be that little that shelter for for a kid reading it, um, especially for an adolescent reading it. Um, I I mean, this, you know, when Cash says, you know, life has given me little reason to feel large, but I see no reason to make myself feel smaller. That's that's when he's trying to decide if he should go to Connecticut. He knows he's going to be with a bunch of people who have um, maybe many more advantages that, he, that he's had, and he's going to feel like a fish out of water. But nevertheless, that line, you know, for someone who's struggling could be like a little lifeline or this one, this quote. Do you want me to read that portion? I was actually just about Absolutely. to read it. So um, this portion of the book is, it, it's really kind of the thesis statement of the book, just very plainly stated. Uh, and this comes as toward the final pages, Cash is getting ready to leave Middleford to go back home. Uh, he's parting ways with Dr. Adkins, they're kind of sharing their goodbyes, and, sh and so we see this. Her gray eyes, now I know them to be the color of the ocean on the cusp of summer, see me. I'll tell you the truest thing I know. You are not a creature of grief. You are not a congregation of wounds. You are not the sum of your losses. Your skin is not your scars. Your life is yours, and it can be new and wondrous. Remember that. So that's, uh, I, I sign copies of In the Wild Light with a, with a very abbreviated version of that quote, where I, where I sign it, and then the dedication is, your life is yours, make it new and wondrous. And that's really, if, if I had to boil this book down to a single paragraph, it's that one. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about it with us and your creative process. Um, so I'm really glad this book is out in the world. I'm really, I'm confident that it's touching a lot of people's lives. Um, the, the, the fear that you felt in writing it probably was a good sign, right? It meant that you were sharing part of yourself that people, um, you know, making yourself vulnerable in that way is never like sort of fun or easy, but it means that 
there's other little vulnerable souls out there who are able to latch on to these little lifelines. That's right. And that's what stories do. So thank you so much. Um, and um, looking forward to whatever you have um, next. Uh, what is your, what is the title of your, is it a novel that you're writing for adults? It is. Yep. And do you have a title for it yet? I do. It's called Honeysuckle Summer, although that could change. Who knows? I, who knows if this book will even be published? I mean, I, I don't have a publisher yet. I'm, I'm going to be uh, shopping it, you know, turning it over to my agent when I in a few months and we'll see what happens to it. I, but hopefully that'll be my first uh, adult novel. Nice. Well, I'm looking forward to whatever you have in the in the pipeline. Well, thank you so much for being on Talking Stories, Jeff. Thank you. It was an honor to, to uh, be on here and to talk with you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Talking Stories. Until next time, friends, keep talking stories. 